Let's go to Genesis chapter 5. So I get oriented, you get oriented, get myself together up here. We are in Genesis. We're actually, those of you that are joining us, we're beginning and have begun this fall a series on Genesis 1 through 11. So we're at chapter 5. Uh, we're beginning a three-part flood series is what's taking place, and your first part is right now. Now, last week I stirred some waters when I said that many of you are, many of you have grown up in and are tired of limp-wristed pastors and churches. And that stirred some waters. I said things like churches today seem to be more like cruise ships than battleships. And pastors today seem to be more girly in grace than gutsy in grace. And that stirred some waters, which I'm glad. But I didn't realize it would stir waters at my home. (laughs) On Tuesday night after we're cleaning up, because my wife makes me clean up, while we're cleaning up the dishes and everyone's banging and clanging and stacking and moving around, this question came out and she says, Honey, do you think that, that girls cannot be gutsy and grace? And all the clanging and the banging and the stacking ceased. And all the kids went, <laughs> I knew I had Kalanox on my side, so I was okay. So I bet some of you are wondering the same thing. So, so you get two sermons for the price of one this morning. Here's my response. Five quick responses. First, if you knew my wife... You wouldn't wonder if women could be gutsy grace. I married a gutsy grace gal. Our marriage wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it a pastor. as a pastor. She wasn't. Okay? So that should be like taking all of this off the table right away. But I know some of you still need more. Well, there are some very clear pictures of gutsy grace in the Bible. The Bible actually gives them to us. Paul in 2 Timothy gives three clear pictures to men and women of what the Christian life is like. Without distinction, he says the Christian life is like a gutsy grace soldier, men and women, a gutsy grace athlete, men and women, a gutsy grace farmer, men and women. And then in Ephesians 6, he says the Christian life is pictured as war. And it's not selective. It's not, oh, I know you men, you gravitate more to the metaphor of war. No, it's, if you're a Christian, you're in a war whether you want to be or not. And the issue is you either get gutsy or you're a casualty. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. And he says it to men and women. And he actually says, because it's a war, men and women, arm yourself with grace. Soldier up. Okay, Now, the prize, the jewel picture of what a woman, a godly woman is, is what? Proverbs 31, right? Proverbs 31. Throughout Proverbs 31, littered throughout Proverbs 31 is military language. Isn't that interesting? Throughout Proverbs 31, you see... Women or the wise woman fighting for God's glory in her marriage, fighting for God's glory in her family, fighting for God's glory in her household, fighting for God's glory in the community. You see valiant, 
heroic warrior women fighting for God's glory. Okay? Response number two. Now, here's number three. Today, it would appear that women in the evangelical church have more gutsy grace than the men. So now I have more letters coming this week. Right? But it's simple, raw, statistical fact that there are more women in the church than the men. Men are MIA. Missing in action. It's the fact. Stats don't lie. So it would seem that women are more spiritual. It would seem that women are more captivated by God. They're more captured by His glory and grace. It would seem that way. There's more of them than men. It would seem that women hunger to know God more than men in the church today. That they're the ones that are hungering and showing up at the theological and Bible classes. They're the ones that are learning how to study their Bible and then actually studying their Bible. Women seem to be the ones that teach their children. Women seem to be the ones that will minister to anyone that moves. So it would seem, too, that women seem to be the workhorses in the church. They carry the most load, and they run faster and further than everybody else. One more. Women seem to make up more of the missionaries being sent from the church today. I spent a summer overseas. My brother was there with me. The people that were long-term missionaries in this Eastern Bloc country stood up, and they gave a challenge to everybody that had been there for the summer. And one girl came up, and this is what she said. She said, look at us. I said, yeah. Look at us. We're all women. And then she said, where are the men? So I showed up next year. Real pure motives. The whole year. I can't believe she said that. She made me mad. But she was absolutely right. Right? Fourth, one of the biggest problems in the evangelical church today is that there are more gutsy grace women than men in the church today. So please hear me. The, the issue is not stop the women, rebuke the women, hold the women back. No, let them go. Let them go. The issue is rebuke the girly men and raise up real men. That's the issue. And what I mean by that is I mean raise up men that build their lives, are driven by, defined by, shaped by, led by, leading by the glory and grace of Christ in a masculine way. I'm not talking, please, I don't want to have to make a clarification next week. Are you talking about some manly temperament like you? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about masculinity that's molded and shaped by the glory and grace of Christ. That's the core. Your temperament, your personality, whatever that looks like is only clothing. The core is that. That's what I'm talking about. So I'm talking about courageous, valiant heroes that fight for the glory of God in their marriage, fight for the glory of God in their families, fight for the glory of God in their church, fight for the glory of God in the community, fight for the glory of God in all areas of life. That's what we're talking about. 
That's what I'm talking about. Now, we need men who are spiritual workhorses, not ducks. Ducks quack. That's all they're good at. Quacking at this, quacking at that. Poisoning others, poisoning the environment, distracting workhorses. Ducks need to stop quacking. Ducks need to stop quacking and repent to become workhorses, or ducks need to be shot. (laughs) All right. If the church raises up gutsy, grace men, the church becomes whole and complete. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not whole and complete because we have gutsy grace women that are shaping the culture of the church it's lopsided. It's not stop them. It's that we need the complement. Image bearing is male and female. It's not one over the other. It's male and female together complementing each other. So what we have is an over-girly church because we don't have the complement of gutsy masculinity complementing it. Do you see the difference? We need both to shape the culture of the church. Now, When I was in high school, my mom had a talk with me about my lack of enthusiasm for God and the church. It just came up naturally. I think we were driving for a rare rare occasion to go to McDonald's. (laughs) Where's my mom? Yeah. She makes everything homemade, very healthy. But we were in a conversation about church and about God and my lack of interest. And I was not a Christian at the time. I don't think I was. And you know what I told her? This is what I told her. I said, listen, I told her it's not about, well, it wasn't about, I don't get the God becoming a man thing. It wasn't about that. It wasn't that I didn't think I was a sinner. It wasn't that I'd, I didn't trust the reliability of the Bible. And the whole resurrection thing, how did that happen? It had nothing to do with that. You know what the reason was? Mom, I don't want to check my manhood at the door when I enter a church. I don't want to be, and I said some things that were a little more colorful, but I said I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that soft. Because I honestly thought that what excluded me from God and the church was not sin, but personality and gender. So what I needed, and what many men need today, is a centurion to tell them about Jesus. So the challenge is, brothers and sisters, for men, we need gutsy grace men. That's what we need. It's time to get in the game. Okay. We have a sermon, Genesis 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. All right, now, you, you got the, in your bulletin, you have the text. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to highlight it, okay? So where we'll start is verse 1. This is the book of the generations. Now, remember, this is how the book's structured. There's ten of these phrases. This is the book of the generations or the history of. There are ten of them throughout Genesis. That's how the book is structured. Here's number two. 
when generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man, and when, when they were created. Now, when Adam had lived 130 years, here's the pattern. The pattern's going to be repeated, so I'm just going to tell this one, and then you get, the, you get the feel of it. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. And that tells you right away that the image of God is still passed on throughout all humanity. Even though it got defaced, it did not get erased. Man is made relationally to know God and made to reflect God. And that doesn't change. doesn't change today. still the same. So we're either doing a good job at it or a bad job at it, but we're doing it. Okay? Now, the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters, still the pattern. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, look at 6, Seth, same thing. Such and such years, fathered a son in his own image. He had other children, especially daughters. He lived, worked hard, had a great life, died. Go down to 9, Enosh, same thing. 12, Kenan, same thing. I always get caught with this one, 15, Mahalalel. Just keep going and you'll get it. Then at 18, Jared, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Pattern breaks. Okay? When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Methuselah. You got it. 28. When Lamech, or Lamech, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, so on and so forth. Now, 32. After Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, Japheth. 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives as any they chose. When the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the heavens are not shut, that you are at work for your glory, and you are at work to make us rest in your work. And, oh, Lord, that's not this passive, this passive rest. 
It is a leaning into. It is a seeing and trusting and treasuring you. And it produces life and obedience and life change and ministry. Gutsy, grace people. So, oh Lord, would you do that in an obscure passage like this today? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first age of the world is coming to an end. Its time has ticked. The buzzer has sounded. It's over. The first age of the world is coming to an end. The flood is coming. That's where we're at right now. What we're doing is that our passage is looking at the dark side of the flood. There are three sides to the flood. That's why there's a series. There's the... the, beginning part or the before part of the flood there's the during part of the flood and then there's the after part of the flood and we're at the before part of the flood we're on the dark side of the flood and each side has a distinct sliver of splendor it wants to show you in obscure places like this now what we're going to look at here on this dark side is we've got to remember, before we get in here, we have to remember who's being targeted. The people that are being targeted in this text are the first generation, well I shouldn't say that, they are the freshly exiled Israelites coming out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. That's when Genesis got inscripturated. Remember Genesis is only chapter 1 of a five chapter book called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. These first five books are a unit. They're one story. Genesis is chapter 1. And Moses was the inspired author. And the audience, the people hearing the first time the Word of God in written form were the Israelites just out of their exile on their way marching to the promised land. Now all kinds of debate goes on over when exactly. Who cares? That's the target audience. So that's who the text is being written to. You've got to keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. And what we have here in this passage is on the dark side of the flood, the dark side, we have something interesting going on. And on this dark side of the flood, escalating darkness has reached the boiling point where God says... That's it. That's it. And what I want you to see is that what's happening and building up to where we are right now in our passage is this. Remember in Genesis 1-2 where the world was a chaotic blob and it was described as darkness, floodwaters, and a wasteland. In our passage, the darkness, the floodwaters, and the wasteland are creeping back into creation. You have a decreation about ready to happen. Okay? And then what happens in our passage is this. This first age, the flood becomes a dividing wall, a continental divide between two great ages. The ages in the Bible are said, this was so definitive, so definitive in the history of the world and in the history of the scriptures that the age of Adam, the history of, Toledot, one of the ten, is described in one way as a world, flood, and then the age of Noah, a new world. And so where we are in the text is we're on the dark side of the flood. Soon we'll get to the light side of the flood. And you know what the light side of the flood is? We have a, a, an Adam-like figure named Noah who fathers a whole new humanity. 
table of nations. We have a whole new creation. We have another world. We have God forming another people and forming and pushing back the floodwaters, the darkness, and the wasteland again the second time. So do you see where we're at? So the question for you and me is who cares about all this? Great. More Bible trivia. I mean, we're Christians. We know we need to know our Bibles. We know we need to know, okay, the table of nations was it Shem, Ham, Japheth. What's the rest, honey? Yeah, okay. Get your Bible knowledge down. Get your stories down. But what difference does it make? Who cares? Fair enough, right? What does the dark side of the flood have to do with your life right now? Can you answer that? Others of you, you think the flood's a myth. I mean, come on! I mean, the Bible takes a myth and is trying to pass it off as history. I mean, we've got examples all over the ancient Near Eastern world of that happening. You've got Gilgamesh and you've got these semi-divine heroes that are loaded in ancient Near Eastern writings and they all had these weird similarities to the flood. Weird similarities to biblical characters. So come on. You know, for you, it's like, who cares if we have another ancient Near Eastern myth passing itself off as history? Who cares? Entertaining, sure. Life-changing, no. Fair enough. Man, you guys are a tough crowd. (laughs) This passage has a lot to do, doesn't it, to prove itself. This passage has its work cut out for itself. Does this passage matter at all in the Bible? The dark side of the flood. Who cares? Well, Buckle up. Buckle up. Here's the point, and it's in question form. What difference does the dark side of the flood make in your life right now? That's the question we're going to answer. That's the point in the text. And I guarantee you, there was an Israelite or two, when they heard this for the first time, that's what they were asking. What difference does it make that we hear this? Okay? All right, here's where we are. Let's find out. What difference does it make? I want you to watch the two lines that are taking place here. Chapter 5, watch the line of Seth. Watch what happens here. Look in your Bibles, look in your bulletin, wherever you got the text. I want you to look at it. Notice that they all live. Here's the pattern. They all live such and such years. That's what's happening. You got such and such years. Who cares about who's got what? They all live that. That's the pattern. Then they bear other children. There's a focus on the father bearing a son in his own image. That happens in all of them. That's the pattern, too. And then after that's mentioned, he lives a certain more years and he bears other children, and, it's, and the emphasis there is on daughters. And so the picture you get here is you have, you have normal life. You have families, marriages, working hard, and then you die. Normal life. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, and then Enoch. And the pattern breaks. 
Look at the pattern breaking. Enoch does not die. He does not die. And when you read that, you should be like, that's weird. Why is that happening? And that is a key to actually prepare you for why this passage matters to you. Why it makes any difference at all in your life. Okay, here's a literal translation. Literally, and Enoch was not because God took him to himself. A break in the pattern of death. Now we keep going. we got Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Another break in the pattern. Instead of Noah had lived, which is the pattern such and such had lived, it says Noah was 500 years. And then after that, instead of going into the normal routine, instead, notice what happens in verse 32. Noah was 500 years. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then where's the rest of it? All of a sudden we're in chapter 6, chapter 7. Keep going if you have your Bibles. Chapter 8, chapter 9. Then look at 928. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Pattern restored. All right. What's the point of the Seth line? I don't know. Let's keep going. Okay, now, watch the line of Cain. Where's the line of Cain? Well, we saw that in chapter 4, but now it's summarized in chapter 6, 1 through 7. Okay, here we go. Line of Cain. Chapter 6, 1 through 7. We have the multiplication of families just like the Seth line. See that in verse 1? Normal life, raising families, working hard, normal stuff. But then what happens in verse 2, it's couched in the language of the fall. Do you see that? A second fall is happening here. It's couched in the language of original sin in 3. What do you mean? Look at verse 2. The sons of God did what? Saw. But the daughters... A man were attractive. They took. You see the pattern? Adam and Eve saw. It was pleasing to the eyes. They took. Okay? So we have a theme here, a fall. Now, others of you wonder, what else theme do we have here? Well, now we have this, this royal tyranny taking place. Because in chapter 4, we got Cain going to the cities and founding cities. And they make these massive cities. But now we have these sons of God that come in. And I know you've got all kinds of thoughts. Like, and I know you've read things. Some of you that have been in church for a long time. And you've got interpretations from some alien-type beings that are created. Some half-breed angel human thing that's going on. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. What's going on here is you have sons of God. You have these Lamech self-elevating people that we saw in Genesis 4 so elevating themselves, they finally assume deity for themselves. They become these tyrannical kings in these cities. And they call themselves either semi-divine or divine. And if you go in ancient Near Eastern history, we know that Pharaoh thought he was from Ra. And the Babylonian king thought he was the God-appointed Marduk. So the history is there. Okay? So what's happening here is that these kings, in their tyranny and in their wickedness, they see the daughters of men and they take them. They take what they want. And all of a sudden, the covenant of marriage, the one-woman man set up in Genesis 2 is now being defaced violently, and you have harems and polygamy on the run. Okay? Now, how does God respond to this? Well, we find that in verse 6 and 7, and what do we find? He has personal pain. Now, some of you in some 
scholars would like to say, is God changing here in his core character? I thought God doesn't change. How can he be grieved? How can he hurt? How can he suffer loss? How can he be pained? And the answer is, it's not a core character that's changing. You're witnessing a core character or perfections in action, in real time. In other words, sin is ultimately against God. Sin rips his heart out. Sin tears at his fame. Sin creates a debt that's got to be paid. Sin creates a cost and a loss to God's glory and character and goodness and love and justice and holiness and righteousness. It's got to be paid. A wage for sin happens. And it's, it's dealt with. The flood comes. Okay. Now, don't miss this, though. It doesn't end even on the Cain line. It doesn't end at verse 7. It ends at verse 8. It ends with Noah. Do you see that? I mean, when you're reading this, you want to say, no, no, no. Eight needs to go. Eight is saying, I belong with nine. Put me down with nine, please. Everything in this is, and in fact, you look at the commentators, they're like, no, that needs to go with nine. No, it doesn't need to go with nine. Because remember how the book is structured. How does verse nine begin? These are the generations of Noah. There's the structure. This is the history of. That's clearly verse eight is not in that structure. It's still in the other one. And here's the point. Here's the impact. The Seth line, the Cain line are all leading you to one Man. Now, before you start saying, how is Noah going to change my life? Will you please let that settle in? The passage is leading you to one man. Everything hangs on one man. We went to New York. You know we went to New York, Nancy and I. We had a wonderful time a couple weeks ago. One of our goals at New York was to go to Ground Zero. It was to go to the towers where they once stood. And so we started the Statue of Liberty with our little map. I hate maps. My wife loves maps. So she's got her nose in the map, calling out all the streets. And I'm saying, you don't need streets. Follow me. It's over here. So I'm going, and I'm trying to find my soldiers, and we're trying to find this place. So we're walking, and we're getting there, and she called out a street. Ah, it's over here. We're lost. We're jabbering back and forth. We round the corner, and then we saw it. I mean, you saw it. You felt it. I saw those trees, I'd seen those trees on TV, and then you saw this wide open space, and it was just overwhelming. My wife starts crying. I couldn't say a word. 
Do you know what needs to happen? Do you know what this passage is doing? It's taking you to ground zero. And you'll see it. And you'll feel it. And you won't be the same. Some of you are struggling with whether God is near. Does he hear me? Is he hanging in there with me? I mean, I just don't. I just, I just don't see him at work. I mean, if I'm going to kind of assess, is he at work? Is he near me? Well, what do I got? I got my circumstances and I got my situations. I got my relational conflicts and I got all the problems that are going on with me. I got how I feel on the inside and I got what I see on the outside. If I'm going to hang on and try to judge that he's near, he's with me, he's hanging in there with me, he cares about me, God's gone. You know what you need? You need to go to ground zero. Some of you struggle with reading your Bible. I mean, you're tired of reading your Bible. You know why you're tired of reading your Bible? Because you're tired. You're tired of Bible trivia. Oh, you're tired of getting Bible knowledge. You're tired of learning how to be one more Bible character. You're tired of these dry, dusty principles that you're supposed to make work in your life somehow. You're tired of that. You're tired of having a quiet time and saying, you know, I've got I to gotta feel something here. I mean, it, it's a waste if I don't. And you come in all anxious. You, before you know it, you know you're, you're sweating because you're like, am I getting what I'm supposed to get out of here? Is he near me? Is he with me? You're tired of reading your Bible like that. It's time for you to go to ground zero and see it and feel it. Others of you are struggling with a lack of God in your life in terms of a real, genuine relationship with God. You know the kind where you make it real. You know, you have this picture of Enoch. What does it say of him? He walked with God. And you say, how do you do that? You know, you hear about it. It's talked about. But how do you have a real relationship with God? So much so that it says you walk with him. You need to go to ground zero. Others of you are saying, you know, I just can't. Everything stops for me with a God who wipes out all those people. Except a handful. What kind of God would do that? You know what you need? To go to ground zero. And then finally, there are some of you that you just, you, know, you just can't trust the Bible, period. I mean, you're still hung up with, you know, the generations don't match up. It doesn't meet the data, the dates, the sequential order, the chronology of what people, archaeologists and things are telling us about time. How do these things line up? And you, you can't get beyond that. And you can't be on a, fl- a flood? Come on. You've got to go to ground zero. Here's ground zero, brothers and sisters. It's found in chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Let's look at it together. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And I want you to see that the language there is the same language used of God and him being pained. 
same language. And the, the catch here is this, is that not only is whatever this person going to bring comfort to the world, the person's going to bring comfort to God's pain. We're getting closer. Lamech thinks his son is the heavenly yet human hero of Genesis 3.15. Lamech thinks his son is the one that steps on the head of the serpent, the snake, and crushes sin and crushes a separation from God and crushes all suffering and stress on the earth. He thinks his son is it. In fact, he gets there and he's basically saying, my son's the champion. This one's going to bring us relief. Do you see that? I mean, that, that will blow you away. Lamech was so close. (laughs) He was so close. But it wasn't the champion. I mean, yeah, when we look at him, what ends up happening with Noah, we start finding out, yeah, God does save the whole world through one man. And then after the flood, we find this man, Noah, standing before God, interceding on behalf of a new creation, having a sacrifice, and establishing a promise that God won't destroy the earth like this again until it comes at the end of the day. So there's this intercessory work of Noah. Close, but not the champion. Here's the difference. Here's the difference between close and champion. Are you ready? Noah was safe in the ark. The champion grabbed Cain-like people, which includes Noah and his family, secures them into the ark, and then he sets his face like flint, and he willingly walks outside the ark. And faces the flood for those in the ark. That's ground zero. That takes my breath away. So we saw some problems and some struggles that we have, didn't I? I can't answer them all, but I'm going to pick three, and that's how we're going to end. The first one is this. Those of you that are struggling with the God of the flood, I want you to look at Genesis 6.3. This might help you. It's not going to help it. It's not going to take it all away. I'm not even going to pretend to do that. The Scriptures don't pretend to do that. The Scriptures make you wrestle with Him. Not flip a magic switch and, I'm better. No, it's always about wrestling with God. Taking a closer look at Him. Look at verse 6. Did I say 6? Look at 6.3. That's what I meant. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh is for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120. Some think, oh, he's limiting the lifespan from these great lifespans to 120. Well, that doesn't happen until Moses. <laughs> I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is that is the tick of the clock before the flood comes. There are 120 days. Before the flood comes, 120 days where the New Testament says Noah is a prophet to his generation, preaching about the flood that's to come, telling them about verses like in verse 6 and 7, how sin accrues a debt and pains and grieves a holy God, and telling them, will you come, come out of the water 
Come into the ark. Trust God to save you. And for 120 years, he bears no fruit. Those of you struggling with reading your Bible, what you need to do, you know what you need to do? Drop the way you're reading your Bible. Forget it. Get rid of it. Don't do it anymore that way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this. I want you to read your Bible no matter where you are in search of the champion. And you know what will happen? You will get refreshed in reading your Bible. And not only that, you're going to want to read your Bible. Because when you find him, you keep going to ground zero every time you look for him. And you'll see him and you'll feel the reality of who he is and the wonder of what he's done. And when that happens, you know what happens too? Your relationship gets revived with God. That's what happens. So stop what you're doing right now. The stuff you're doing right now, which is find a biblical character and be like him or don't be like him, is going to dry up your soul. The way you read right now where you're looking for some sort of how-to or principle to apply to your life to make yourself better, you're going to dry up your soul. Read to find the champion and you'll raise your soul up. Okay? The other is this. Those of you struggling with your, making your relationship with God real, what you need to do is see this. You need to see your champion grab you. Do you want to make it real? I mean, do you want a relationship with God that's real? If you do, then you want to see a champion grab you, take you and secure you in a safe ark, and then willingly turn around because he loves you and walks outside the ark to face the flood for you. Now, when you feel that and you get that, it gets real personal. He loves me personally. His grace gets personal. His presence gets intoxicating. If he's done the hardest thing that can be done, now you have strength and energy and enablement and a real intense walk with God. Now, when you face the tough times in life, when all you got when all you have as a Christian, all you have in the tough times of life is your knowledge of God. If you have a little of it, that's all you got. If you got a lot of it, you got more to hang on to. If you have a, a true Knowledge of God, that's what you hang on to. If you have a twisted knowledge of God, that's what you hang on to. What you get here is a lot to hang on to. You get a champion that loves you like that. That's with you like that. That never leaves you like that. That'll make it real. What difference does the dark side of the flood make in your life right now? That was our point in question form. The answer, it leads you to one man. It leads you to ground zero. Amen.